We're going to be in 2 Corinthians tonight. If you would open your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. All right, let's let's pray. Father, we come before You in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we ask that You would bless our time of worship this evening. We ask that You would bless the preaching of Your Word. Father, we confess that we have nothing in ourselves, that we are hopeless apart from Christ. Father, we ask that You would look upon us in Him and You would bless us. Father, we give thanks for the Lord Jesus. We deserve to be in hell. But You sent Your Son into the world to die for us. Father, please teach us this evening. Apart from You, we have no hope and we cannot understand. So we ask that by Your Spirit, You would illuminate our minds. Help us with the, the heat and the noise of the fans to focus. I pray that everything that we have been learning, everything we've been learning about preaching, will be put into action during this time. If I pray that that each one of us would be reminded that the preaching of Your Word is serious. That we would hear carefully. We ask that You would use this time to make us more like Christ. We ask, Father, that You would look upon us and bless us. That our weaknesses would drive us closer to You. That You would just look upon us in mercy and in grace and teach us from Your Word. Be with us during this time. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. And we pray with confidence, knowing that He has purchased full access for us and that in Him you are well pleased. Amen. Amen. What we're going to look at tonight is really simple. I think it's really important. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I just, I'd like you to notice right away who Paul is addressing here. 2 Corinthians 1.1 tells us that, that Paul is writing to the church of God that is at Corinth. And we can see here in this verse 
He says the words, beloved. So you see the connection, the, the intimate connection that Paul has with his audience here. He says, let us cleanse us. There's that inclusive language. And also if you look up at verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So Paul is not writing to those he is considering to be unbelievers, but to believers. So make a note of that in your mind. Now this verse, I've broken it down into three parts. And just logically, that's how it's communicated to us. And I, I want you to get that right up front. It's really important for our time here tonight. Um, the first part of the verse says, since we have these promises, the second part of the verse, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And then the third part of the verse says, bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, our primary focus is going to be here in the first part of the verse, since we have these promises. But again, I want you to just see how this lays, lays upon each other. We see that really clearly. In this one particular verse, Paul is giving these Corinthian believers a motivation. He tells them what to do. And then he gives them instructions. He gives them a, motiva a motivation. And then he gives them instructions. And then he gives them the result of the instructions in the third part. We have motivation, instructions, and we have the result of following the instructions. So, so what's the motivation? Since we have these promises, what's the instructions? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. That's what Paul is telling them that they must do, the self-cleansing. And the result of doing that is bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, just lay that on top of an illustration. Lay that layout with an illustration. In my house, when daddy's hungry, mama goes to the kitchen and gets down a cookbook. So daddy being hungry, that's the motivation. Mama going to get the cookbook, there's the instructions. And then she makes a lasagna, there's the result of her following the instructions. In a similar way in our text, we have motivation, we have instructions. We have the result of following the instructions. And again, the motivation this evening is going to be our primary focus. The first part of the verse. Since we have these promises. Really simple. I want you to think right up front what motivation is. Motivation is it's in everything that we do. It's, it's at the heart of it. It's the how we do what we do, and it's the why that we do what we do. It's an inward thing that manifests itself outwardly. What ultimately is motivating us is not only the why, and that's what we think about very often, but it's also the how. When the reason for why we do something is askew or perverted, when the motivation is perverted, what we actually do is perverted or askew. What motivates us is the why. What motivates us is also the how. Use that same illustration. Think about mama who, who has cooked for her family. Why did mama cook? Daddy was hungry. 
And why we do something is, again, that's what we think of. Our motivations are what drive us, what goad us on, what push us on or encourage us to do something. It's the why. But at the same time, how does food get cooked? If nobody was hungry, the food wouldn't get cooked. How does a person do something? It begins with some motivating factor pushing them to do it. Does that make sense? You know, it's really simple. I want it to be really clear to everyone. At the same time, uh, again, think about it this way. If, if mama goes into the kitchen, starts cooking, lasagna gets made, why does lasagna get made? Why? Daddy was hungry. If someone watches my family from Kraft uh, Cheese, with the Parmesan Cheese Company, and says, how can we get that mama to make lasagna? All they have to do is get the daddy to be hungry. It's, it starts with the motive. The motive. So I really want us to see that. And Paul here, looking at our text, why should these Corinthian Christians cleanse themselves from every defilement of body and spirit? thereby bringing holiness to completion. Answer the first part of the verse, the motivation, since we have these promises. How can these Corinthian Christians cleanse themselves from every defilement of body and spirit, thereby bringing holiness to completion? Answer, the beginning seed of the how is found in the first part of the verse, the motivation, since we have these promises. So understanding this part is crucial in the pursuit of holiness. It was crucial for them in Corinth. Paul thought it was, it was enough to motivate them, and it's crucial for us today. The apostle is laying out the promises as the motivation for what he tells the Corinthian Christians that they themselves must do. They are instructed to cleanse themselves from all filthiness which will bring something about. That yes, we know is a perfection that will not be completely realized until eternity. But the apostle doesn't write that way. It's, it's not what he says. He writes as though this is something, this holiness brought to completion is very attainable. It, it's the result of what will happen if they follow the instructions. There is a, a, a real path of righteousness that they can walk in. A, a real holiness that the believer can know. That the believer, with the help of the Holy Spirit, can enter into. Without which no one will see the Lord. And it is a holiness that will be known. It will be known if the self-cleansing is done. And it's carried out like the Apostle Paul tells these believers here in Corinth to do. And since we have these promises, that is Paul's motivation that he gives for the duty and the work that Christians must do in cleansing themselves, bringing holiness to the completion in the fear of God. The promises are both the why we ought to, and it's also the promises are the how we cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bring completion in the fear of God. Bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. So what are the promises? And I said that a lot. I really want everyone to get that right up front. It's really the main thrust of what we're looking at. Is this, these promises are the motivation. 
So what are the promises? Uh, that word is since, or in uh, some English translations it says therefore. That's pushing us back. So all we have to do to figure out uh, what these promises are is go back before this chapter break that really shouldn't be here. Uh, and we can see what those promises are. Um, and and I'll, I'll read, if you look in your Bibles, I'll read from verse 14 of chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Balaam? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul is telling them not to partner with those that are not Christians. What, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God dwells in us. The Spirit of God dwells in God's people. What business do we have partnering with the wicked and the profane? None. No business. It makes no sense. We love God. The unbeliever hates God. The Christian loves God. The unbeliever does not. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And then Paul, he, verse 16 he begins quoting several verses from the Old Testament. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's much that can be said here. Uh, but for this evening, we're just looking at a broad look at this, trying to answer this question, what are the promises? Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. The answer to that question is in verses 16 to 18. It lays it out. What are the promises? God says, I will make my dwelling among you. God says, I will walk among you. He says, I will be your God. You should be my people. He says, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. So that, there's the promises. Ultimately, what is the promise? Just very simple here. No one should miss this. What is the heart of these promises? God says, go out from the midst of everyone and everything that defiles and if you do that, here's the promise. You get me. That's it. That, that's the heart of these promises. Really simple. Everyone should see that. The motivation that Paul gives these Corinthian believers to cleanse themselves from everything that defiles is that, is, is that we get God. There's, that's the heart of these promises. We get to know Him. 
We get to know His presence. The promises is that we get to have a genuine, close relationship with the living God. That's the promise. That's the motivation. That was the promise that God made to those in the Old Testament. That was the, the promise that, God, that Paul is making here in this letter to those that are in Corinth. And that is the promise that, that God has made to us today. Go out from the midst of everyone and everything that defiles. And if you do that, you will get to know me. That's what God says. And we get to enjoy Him and have unhindered fellowship, an unhindered relationship with Him. He says, I will make my dwelling among you and walk among you, and I will be your God and you will be my people. Now with this motivation, it's, it's not simply that if you, he's not saying that if you do not go out from the midst of the wicked and be separate from them and touch no unclean thing, you really have no claim at all to call yourself a child of God and you're going to be thrown in hell on the last day. Although that's true, that, that's not the way he's putting forth this motivation. That is a type of motivation. That's what we would call the stick type of motivation. This type of motivation that we see here is more of the carrot. It's not the belt. It's the piece of candy. It's not the bamboo stick. It's, it's, it's recess outside. Here we have a motivation that is a promised privilege. He doesn't say, if you don't do this, I'm not going to dwell with you. Or if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. Or if you don't do this, I will not be a father to you. Although that is completely true. Here we see a positive motivation given to these believers. A positive promised privilege. It's a promise saying that if you will cleanse yourself from all filthiness, God will make it known to you that He is walking with you. It's, it's a privilege that the believer can enjoy. It's a promise that if you will cleanse yourself from all filthiness, He will make it known to you that you are His and He is yours. He will make His presence known among us. And He will make it known unto you that you are welcome to come unto Him. And He will make it known to you that He is your Father. And you will enjoy those blessings. And that is all the motivation that a true believer needs to touch no unclean thing. To, to not partner with workers of lawlessness. That's all the motivation that a true believer needs to do the self-cleansing that is necessary to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Again, what we're looking at, it's real simple, but it's really important. The promise is simple. You get to enjoy the manifest presence of God. You get to enjoy the felt sense of communion with Him. You get to enjoy His love. You get to enjoy a personal relationship with the living God. You get to enjoy Him for who He is. So cleanse yourself from every defilement. Lest your prayers are hindered. Lest you offend the Spirit. Lest your hearts become hardened toward God. We get to know God. The triune God. The Father. The Son. The Holy Spirit. The living God. So beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. 
And that's, that's really the simple point. Very simple, but I hope it's really clear. The motivation for holiness is, is the fact that we get to enjoy a relationship with God. It, it's, it's, it's the manifestation of the presence of God. The motivation for holiness is the true, living, felt, known, real relationship with the living God. And again, that's, that's all the motivation that the true Christian needs. That is what motivates the true Christian. It is sufficient to motivate. Paul doesn't use some other motivation. Notice that. Some other mo motivation would not have the same power to spurn these believers on, to pluck out their eyes and to cut off their hands. Paul refers to a relationship. Paul points to the living God who has a living, loving relationship with His people. And he says, because of this, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Paul doesn't just say, oh, these things are true. He doesn't just say we can cleanse ourselves and, and, and be rid of all filthiness. So for that reason, let's cleanse ourselves and be rid of all filthiness. He doesn't just say that. Paul doesn't just say, since we can be holy people and not sin, let's cleanse ourselves. He doesn't say, since, since we can have a right standard of living, let's cleanse ourselves. He doesn't just say that. He doesn't say, since we can win souls and we need to win souls, let us cleanse ourselves. He doesn't simply say that. He doesn't just say, since we need to have a, a wholesome, traditional family, let us cleanse ourselves. Paul doesn't say, since we know hell is real, and sinners go there, let us cleanse ourselves. Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say, since we get to live forever and walk on streets of gold, let us cleanse ourselves. None of those things, again, would, would be wrong. But what he, what he does here goes significantly deeper than that. It goes right to the heart. The motivation that Paul gives goes right to the heart of what everything is about. Since God has promised to be with us, to walk with us, and to watch over us, and care for us as a father cares for sons and daughters, then cleanse yourselves from every defilement. We are the temple of the living God. The living God. Not just the God that studied, but He is the living God. The living God lives and manifests Himself in a real and living way amongst His people. The living God walks with His people. We can know Him. The living God. So come out. Separate yourself. Touch no unclean thing. Cleanse yourself from everything that defiles body and spirit. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The, the fear of God. What is that? It's because he is, this is because we see who He is. Because He is holy. Because His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He is good. He is a consuming fire. He does not wink at sin. He, he, does not, he does not wink at idolatry. He does not wink at trampling underfoot the Lord Jesus. He takes none of these things lightly. So since we get to know this holy God, cease from sin. God Himself is the motivation. If you love Him and you know His love, 
then that will be all the motivation you need to pursue holiness. Those that don't care about the sin in their life, they don't care about having a relationship with God. Those that don't care about the sin in their life, they don't love God. That's what they're manifesting. Those that, that do say they care about the sin in their lives, and, and maybe they've implemented specific regulations. Maybe they dress a certain way or, or whatever it may be. I, I don't want to uh, just throw anything out there because it could be anything. Maybe you have those who implement a standard, but they know nothing of a living experiential relationship with God. They also don't love God. The heart of the Christian life is not something other than knowing and enjoying and loving and being loved by the God who made us and sent His Son into the world to rescue us and to redeem us so that we will always be with the Lord. The heart of the Christian life is not simply mere teaching about justification. But rather, it is knowing the living God who justifies sinners because of the work that He Himself has done. It's not simply something that we study, but it is something that we, we know. It is real. The heart of the Christian life is not simply mere teaching about the attributes of God that, that are just to be studied. But rather, it is tasting and seeing and knowing in your own soul who God is and, and seeing how He continues to reveal Himself to you through the Word, through nature, through all the means that He has ordained. The heart of the Christian life is not simply, it's not simply Bible reading and praying. I don't want to take away from the power of the Word of God and the worth of the Word of God. The Bible that we have is the Word of God, but consider the Mormon. Consider the Jehovah's Witness that reads their Bible. Consider the, the, the Delier down the street that reads his Bible. What benefit is it to them? And, and I say that because apart from knowing the living God, you cannot, apart from the living God being inside of you, you cannot understand the mind of God. Unless God takes His Word and illuminates your mind in a way that takes the supernatural Word of God and applies it to your soul supernaturally. Ultimately, you may pick out a few things here, but you'll really find no true delight in any word in these 66 books. Not in a way there will be power to live by it. Not in a way where there's true hunger to come back to it. Because if you don't know God, the Bible is not going to be food for your soul. You're not going to see it as food for your soul. You may know that language. A lot of people know that language. But you won't truly know it as food for your soul. It'll just be another old book. The Christian life is not just about reading the Bible. But it's knowing the living God of the Bible. Who, who speaks through the Bible. Having Him speak to us through the Bible. It's not just coming and going through the routine of reading words on paper and going through some duty, but it is going and, and hearing from God, the living God who speaks through His Word. The Bible is His Word, but if you don't have any desire 
to hear what God has to say. And you treat the Bible just like a textbook or, or, or just some collection of rules, which is really easy to do amongst so-called Christians. If that's all it is, you've missed the point. The similar thing can be said about prayer. You can go through the routines of, of prayer all you want to. You can pray here. You can pray at your house. You can pray at dinner table. You can pray on the street preaching or something. You, you can pray uh, anywhere. But if, if you aren't talking to God and your heart is not extending out to Him and you're not praying and talking in a way to where you are, you are intentionally going to God with your prayers, you're just talking to other people around you. That's ultimately what it is, which is why um, men like Puritans, like Jonathan Edwards has an excellent work on it, if you've never read it. How he talks about how hypocrites, hypocrites will always, 100% of the time, show that they are devoid, that they do not have a consistent, they cannot maintain a consistent, continued practice of personal, private prayer because they have no reason to do that. It's just them talking to themselves. And then if they do go through the duty, it's not going to last. And if they do, it's going to be short. And it's not going to be consistent or, or passionate in any way. It'll just be cold. It won't be true fellowship. The Christian life is about fellowship with the living God. The Christian walks in joyful obedience because we love Him. He is our God and we want to be like Him. And we want to honor Him and bring Him glory. And we most certainly, if we are truly Christian, we most certainly do not want to offend Him. Now, if I'm not going to do it, but if you were to turn to your neighbor and say, Hi, how are you? And they were to respond back and they would say, Fine. We would call that maybe having a time of fellowship. A lot of churches do that. You should know what that word fellowship means. We go to a family's house on Wednesdays. We, we fellowship together. We, we use that language a lot. We, uh, we have a fellowship meal out here. We, all of that, that friendship, that camaraderie that we share, that, that getting to know one another, enjoying each other's company, that fellowship that we have when we hang out, that is really close, it's not like most people that we know. This fellowship that we have, that is not what the Christian life is about. It's not. That might be what it's about for the Deliers, but that is not what it's about for us. It's, for us, it's about having that same fellowship with the living God. When we have a relationship with someone, you talk to them, they talk back. It, it, it's not one way, it's not they just talk to me or not I just talk to them, but we, we communicate with one another. And that is what the Christian life is. It is a two-way relationship with the living God. It's about having that enjoyed fellowship and relationship with God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We can enjoy each other's company all we want to, but the reality is, if you do not know what it is to enjoy true, living, and experienced fellowship with God, you're really not a Christian. Or at least, if nothing else, you're missing out on the very best of treasures. And, and, and this would explain why you're still dabbling in sin. 
This would explain why you're, you're, you're like Lot's wife, still looking back to, to old things. This would explain why, the, why, why you don't seem to have the, the get up and go to read your Bible, the get up and go to, to cut off hands and, and to uh, pluck out eyes. Because you don't have this motivation. This motivation of knowing the living God. That's, that's the difference between a, a person who professes to be a Christian and someone who is not. This, we talk about this a lot. We talk about a, a true Christian will be obedient to the will of God and a false Christian is going to continue in habitual sin. But why, why is that? Why is that? Because when a person is really born again, God says that He gives them a heart to know Him. The person who is self-deceived and just thinks they are a Christian, they have a heart for something, but it's not, it's not for the true living God. The true Christian ceases from sin because he loves God and he doesn't want to offend Him. Because, he's, because he sees who God is and he sees that He is worthy of His obedience. Because he loves Him and knows Him. The true Christian does not desire increased faith simply so that he can sleep better at night. Or so he can have things granted unto him, maybe through prayers or something. Or, or, or so his ministry can increase. Or so his family can have some benefit. The, the true Christian desires God to strengthen his faith so that he can enjoy God more. So that he can see Him more clearly. To know Him with, with more light and more knowledge and more understanding. And behold His beauty with more fullness. And even as babes, whether you're a babe in Christ's school or mature in Christ's school, true born-again Christians learn very quickly that committing sin makes it more difficult to behold God by faith. It, we it weakens our faith weakens the faith. And that itself is almost, to use this language, it's almost a, a form of hell to the believer. And it is painfully grievous to the true believer. The true Christian, because he knows what it is to behold Christ with saving faith, because he knows what it is to enjoy an unchanging, declared peace with God, and also experience peace with God, because the believer knows what it is to be strengthened by the love of Christ, because the believer knows what it is to open up the Scriptures and experience something supernatural. That, that something he didn't know when he was unconverted. Where he can open up the Scriptures and it just unfold and unfold and unfold and be illuminated to his mind in a way that can't be described as anything but supernatural. Because the true Christian knows what that is. Because the true Christian knows what it is to go and be able to be in, in turmoil, but yet have comfort. Because the true Christian knows what it is to have his heart panting for the one who sent his own son to die for him. Because the true Christian truly knows God and truly loves Him and isn't just phony and fake. He wants nothing more than to please God. He wants more fellowship with God. The true Christian will find it grievous to grieve the Holy Spirit. The true Christian will desire to do all he can not to grieve Him who his soul loves. 
The true Christian will not want to lose the manifested presence of God. The true Christian will not want to do things that are going to hinder his prayers. The true Christian will not want to love anything else but Christ. The true Christian wants to be able to approach God with confidence. Not in a fact that he deserves some access to the throne of grace, but simply confident that Christ Jesus has died for him and he is living in a way that is not presuming upon his mercy and is showing forth that he's thankful for what the Savior has done for his unworthy soul and he isn't being ungrateful. That's what the Christian desires for is to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. The true Christian longs to have more assurance that God is with him and, to make, and for God to make it known his soul and manifest to him that he is walking with him and is dwelling with him, that God is watching over him and is leading him and is guiding him, and that the triune God is, is his. And he belongs to the triune God. The true Christian wants that, desires that, that strengthened, strengthened fellowship with God. He does not want broken fellowship. Or any hindrance in his shared, real relationship with the living God. Why does the true Christian feel that way? Because unlike the self-deceived and unlike the pretender, the true Christian has tasted and seen. The true Christian has beheld the glory of God in Christ. And it is everything to his soul. To where it's now all he wants. He knows it better, to be, better than anything else on the planet. It's what his soul, he knows that this is what his soul has needed his entire life. He just didn't know about it before. God is, is now, to the true Christian, all his soul will ever truly find true hopeful delight and true hopeful pleasure in. He will now not, not ever find real peace or comfort in anything else again because he has, he has had the very best of all comforts. And that's knowing the very one who made him, the very one who his soul was made to delight in and find, find comfort in. The false Christian, on the other hand, knows absolutely nothing about, about any of this. Knows nothing about that. They hear the language and it's like speaking Spanish. Or maybe it's like studying Hebrew. Or maybe it's like studying superlapsarianism. Or maybe it's like studying the biblical theology of the temple. Uh, it, 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 where it's just, it's just a list of information. It just becomes a list of information of what happens in the Christian life. And, it, and they may memorize it very well. Or it might just be something they know vaguely. But they know nothing of having and feeling and experiencing and enjoying the living God alive in their hearts. And they know nothing of who God is truly in their inward man. They know nothing yet of the love of God being shed abroad in their souls. In a real way. In a way that is a reality. A way that's relational and experientially felt and known. <laughs> And so therefore they have no motivation to cleanse themselves from that which God hates. Paul tells these Christians since we have these promises that we get Him, that we get to know God, we, we get to know His presence. These promises that, that He will let us know Him, that He will be ours. 
and we will be his. That, that we will have fellowship with him and him with us. To the false Christian, those promises mean nothing. Mean nothing. And they prove they mean nothing because they continue in idolatry. They continue in rebellion. They continue in, in, in the lust of the flesh. These promises are no motivation of holiness for the hypocrite and for the self-deceived. Because they don't truly know God. In reality, they hate God. And their apathy for God, their apathy for the very highest of all worth, goodness, and glory, their apathy for the very one who has fed them and taken care of them and, and been better to them than any created person ever has, their apathy is evidence of their hatred for the Father, their hatred for the Son, their hatred for the Holy Spirit. Prove it by their lack of concern, their lack of care, and their disobedience. Their, their apathy toward holiness, their apathy toward sin, is evidence of their hatred for God. If you are not motivated by the promise of the sensed presence of God, if you are not bothered by the idea of that manifest presence being taken away, you have no reason to think that you're a Christian. You've maybe made a decision and learned some things intellectually, but there is no evidence that you're born again. And we can talk about heaven and hell. Heaven and hell are realities. We can talk about eternal life, eternal heaven. We can talk about eternal death, a lake of fire. They are realities, but recognize this, Especially in our culture where everyone knows those words and that language. Everyone wants to live forever. And no one wants to be punished forever in a fiery hell. That's really no evidence of anything. Heaven and hell, if that's all that, that, that motivates you. Really, that's a showing forth. If that's all that's motivating you is that you're not truly a Christian. Christ Jesus is not the roadmap to the treasure. If you are a believer, you know that He is the treasure. This is eternal life, that we know Him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. The Lord is the dwelling place, the eternal dwelling place for the believer. He is the home for the true Christian. The Lord Himself is a dwelling place, even in this life, for the true Christian. Heaven is the final home for the true believer, where He will forever be with the Lord. But even on this side of eternity, while the Christian is a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth, the true believer has a home in Christ. It's a spiritual home that he knows and he experiences it and it's real and he feels it and he goes there and he goes to it and he walks in it. He stays in it. He enjoys it. It is a real thing. It is a place. It is a place. And he goes there and he knows it in the midst of all turmoil. And there, there's peace. And he knows it. it is a home in the midst of a world that is changing, in the midst of a world that is unfaithful, in the midst of a world that is sinking sand and is dying, in the midst of the valley of death. The true Christian has a, has a living home for his soul where he finds refuge and comfort. The home is Christ. 
God himself is heaven for the true Christian. He himself is a heaven so complete that nothing could ever be added to it to make it more perfect or more glorious or, or, or more enjoyable in any way. He is perfect and he is home for the believer. Just let me be with my beloved. Just let me be with my beloved, the one whom my soul loves. Just let me be with him forever. That is, that is the cry of the true believer. The born-again man wants him. He is all the motivation that the true believer needs. He is all the treasure that the true believer wants and wants forever. But the false Christian, the pretender, and the hypocrite, he has no home for his soul now. He has no home for his soul now. And he refuses to go to Christ, where if he would knock, the door would be open, but he will not go. The false Christian will not because he hates God. Pretenders, hypocrites, who know no home for your soul in this life. You're deceived if you think you'll find a home with Christ after you die inside the gates of heaven. If you're rejecting Him today, you have no reason to think you'll be inside the gates of heaven. Those that know Christ is a home for the soul, truly in this life, they don't want to be kept away from it. They don't want to be kept away from that home which is Christ. They want to be with Him. They don't want to, they don't want to go away from it for anything. And if they stray, it's misery. It's misery. It doesn't matter how much milk and money, milk and honey they have. It doesn't matter uh, what success or what victories might be handed over to them. It doesn't matter what material blessings and pleasures might be offered. Those that know the Lord and know what it is to truly be His, they don't want any earthly pleasure, whether good or bad, if it means that the Lord is not going to go with them. So really what it becomes is the cleansing yourself of not just things that are, we know to be wicked, but the true believer is going to want to put off anything that hinders his relationship. Anything. What is the motivation for cleansing ourselves of that which is wicked, that which is corrupt and defiles body and spirit? What is the motivation? You know things that are going on in your own life that the rest of us don't know. You know if you are a believer, that there is a hand that still needs to be plucked and it needs to be chopped off, a leg that still needs to be cut, an eye that still needs to be plucked. What is the motivation for the self-cleansing that you must do? What is the motivation to keep cutting off hands and keep plucking out eyes? The motivation is God Himself. It's remembering who He is. Remembering that He loves you. That Christ died for you, was crucified for you. He was nailed to a cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Bearing the eternal weight of hell that you deserve. Because He loves you. And He loves you like no one else has ever loved you. He has done that for you. Won't you cut off a hand for Him? Won't you pluck out an eye for Him? So that you can enjoy Him more. You can enjoy and know His love deeper. Enjoy His love which surpasses all knowledge more fully and more deeper and with more joy. There's the motivation. Won't you do that? That is the motivation. God is yours. You are His. He loves you. We can know Him. 
If you are a Christian, you have a place under the shadow of his wings. You have a home in him, even in this valley of death that we live in. You have a home in Christ. That is the motivation. Remember that since God has promised to walk with you, dear believer, remember that, that when the world and the devil try to entice you to just walk with them for a little bit, remember, even when your flesh says it'll be okay for just a little bit, remember that if you do that, you're walking away from the best thing. You're walking away from your home if you go after them. You're giving up the enjoyed, manifest presence of the Lord walking with you. And say no. Cleanse yourself from every defilement and touch no unclean thing. Because there is no place like home. There's no hope in this world, but there is hope in Christ. There is hope in the promises of God. There is peace and comfort and satisfaction and joy and hope in Him and in His presence. So purify yourself as Christ is pure. So that you can know Him deeper and sweeter. Consider the reverse of what Paul is saying in these verses. As though it was saying, if you don't cleanse yourself from every defilement, if you touch that which is unclean, if you don't separate yourself from the heathen, then you are not going to experience God dwelling with you and in you. And you're not going to experience Him walking with you. And you're not going to enjoy Him as your Father. Ask yourself, is that terrible enough for you? Is it terrible enough for you to hear those words? Is it misery enough for you or do you need something else? For the true Christian, that itself, again to use this language, that itself ought to be, ought to be held. The idea of broken communion with God ought to be weighty to us. It ought to make us... The thought ought to make us miserable. It ought to make us tremble. It ought to be a terrible thing. And at the same time, so the promise of a sweeter communion ought to be all the motivation you need to strive after holiness. Christianity is a reality. It's real. It's a reality that is rooted and grounded in Christ, a rock immovable. It's secure. Your blessings with God are secure in Christ. But Christianity is it's also a subjective experience. True believers look upon Christ by faith. Faith alone. And have a, a real personal experiential fellowship and relationship with God. And what we do makes a difference in that experience. We can either enjoy the privilege of having a relationship with God. Or we can avoid God and neglect the relationship. But what we do matters. If you give your heart to idols, if you give yourself to the carnal lust, if you fill your heart and go after things other than Him, you're giving up the privilege of enjoying sweet communion, the sweet pleasure of, of having a, being able to have a relationship with God. And you're running, you're running from Him. You're messing up the very things that, that you ought to be enjoying. Who God is, what He has done for us in rescuing us while we were yet sinners, and all the things that He provides for us, all the blessings that we have, in all the ways that we can see His holiness and see His goodness, and in all the ways we can see who He is, and the promise that He will be ours. 
that we will be His and that we can enjoy Him and worship Him and come into His presence with gladness and thanksgiving. That is all the motivation that we need to cut off everything that could put us back into bondage or, or slow down our, our sanctification. Who He is and the promise that we have, all the promises that we have in Christ, the promises that we have that He will not leave us or let us go, the promise that we are forgiven, the promise of heaven and an eternal way to glory, and all that He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the privileges, the privilege of knowing and enjoying Him, that is all the motivation we need to purify ourselves as Christ is pure. In worship and in prayer, we had the privilege of being able to enjoy mystic, sweet communion with the triune God. And in prayer, even though we cannot see Him physically, can't see Him with, with these, spiritually, we can delight in the glory of His presence on this side of eternity. Do you know what that is like? Do you know what it's like to have your heart burn because you're in His presence? The more you know what that is like, the more you know what it is to be in His presence in prayer and in His Word, being taught by Him, where you are spiritually being taught and He is opening up His Word to you. The more you know what that is, the more you know Him to be safety and rest for your soul, the more you know what it is to taste the joy and the delight of His presence. The more you know Him, the more you know what it is to have fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the harder and the harder and the harder it becomes to give in to temptation. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. One more time. Maybe it's the 20th time. If you go home, you'll remember this and get it, I hope. What is the motivation for holiness? Because God says He will dwell with us, He will walk with us, and He will be our God, and we will be His people. That is the motivation. So, just to leave you with this, tomorrow morning, when you're tempted to sleep in, don't. Get up. Let's, let's go home early tonight. Go home. Set your alarm to wake up early in the morning. And tomorrow, as soon as your eyes pop open, when you are, are tempted to, to look at your phone, are you tempted to just give your mind to something stupid? Don't do it. Don't do it. Instead, as soon as your eyes pop open, give praise to God for waking you up. For waking you up. And if you don't have words, just sing a song. We know a lot of them. Just sing a song. I do that a lot. Sing a song. Holy, holy, holy. You don't know what to say. Just sing holy, holy, holy. And begin and get your Bible and find a quiet place. And spend, get up early enough to spend more than an hour. Spend some hours with the Lord reading your Bible and hearing Him speak to you and speaking with Him, singing praises and giving thanks and reading His Word. 
Seek Him and you will find Him. And ask Him to walk with you throughout the day. And it'll be a blessing to you. It'll be a blessing for all of us. Seek Him. Enjoy Him. And at all costs, avoid anything that may get in your way. Avoid anything that may hinder your fellowship with Him. At all costs, avoid anything that may quench the Spirit, even if it costs you your own life. Let's pray.